Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. There is a division in our world. I mean, it's so evident today, and I'm not talking about political divisions, although those are dramatic, but it, it's, it's not just political, it's moral, it's in every realm that's out there. The, the darkness is advancing, and, and I'm not a preacher of, oh, Lord, it's going to get bad, you know, we need to... Um, Need to go buy our emergency food stocks and get our our bunkers ready, and you know get ready to hole up. No, the world's getting darker and darker, and the church is getting lighter and lighter. Amen. And not only are we getting brighter, but the darker it gets, the greater the contrast. I remember growing up, my uh, my brother was a guide at um, two different caves down in southern Indiana. I was the lifeguard at the pool for where one of them was, and they had a little demonstration they would do to show people what absolute darkness is. And in absolute darkness, when you're down in, you know, four or five hundred feet underground, and you turn the lights off, you cannot see the, your hand in front of your face. There is no light at all. You cannot see a thing. And they would take and go, they'd usually go behind some big rock pile, and they would just strike a match. And they, to make it more dramatic, they'd always burn a little ring of magnesium, which gives off a huge amount of light. But when they struck that match to light the magnesium, suddenly you could see. It only, I mean, you could have, we had, they had rooms, one of them was as big or bigger than this sanctuary. And just that one match in absolute darkness shone brightly. Now, we ought to be burning like the magnesium burn. If you've ever seen magnesium burn, it's a bright light, and it, it's, it's an intense heat that comes off of that. That's what God's called us to do. But we have to, it's not just going to happen because we want it to, or it's not even going to just happen because it's God's will to happen. We have an enemy in this life. John 10.10, for me, it's a dividing line of the entire gospel. The the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There is a thief. You have an enemy, and he wants to steal from you. He wants to not only kill you, he wants to destroy everything that you are about in the process of killing you. But thank God that, as Paul Harvey used to say, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is, Jesus said in that same verse, I have come to give you life, and that more abundantly. He didn't just bring us life, pie in the sky by and by. Thank God if I die today, I'm going to heaven. That is a reassuring thought. But there's more to life and more to being a Christian than just hang on, you know, It'll all be over soon. We're just going to go through trouble and trial and tribulation, and when we get to heaven, it'll all be worth it. No, God is active in the world today. He wants to be active in our lives today to empower us so that we can let the light of the gospel shine out to a lost and dying world. It's getting so dark that even sinners know that things are getting bad. And they're looking, they will fight you. They are like, and I'm sorry if we've got any teenagers here, they are like teenagers. When I raise my kids, I have two great kids. And they're 40 and 37, but they're still kids. They'll always be kids to me. They're my kids. And they were great teenagers. Lord have mercy, if if they had given me even half the problems I gave my mom and dad, I would have shot them. I, I look back on my teenage life, and I, it's a wonder I survived. My mother threatened to beat me to death several times, and it's a wonder she didn't. But my kids were great, but they still had problems. There were still days when, when they were crazy, but every day through their teenage years, they 
always gave you the front, I don't want to listen. I don't need your advice. I don't want to hear from you. But you know what? Secretly, they were craving it. I'm watching my two-year-old grandson, and I'm careful not to use the terminology terrible twos, but I'm watching him. I mean, the second he hit two years old, he started testing his boundaries. And part of that is the flesh in him. The rebelliousness is part of our nature, our fallen nature. But there is also a part of him that wants some security. I want to know how far I can go. Mom, Dad, tell me, can I do this? And when you tell him, nope, that's where the line, he will pitch a fit sometimes. He does not like to be told no. But at the same time, he wants to know. And there, there, that is the dichotomy of, of the lost. You will present life to them and they will pitch a fit. Shut that stuff up. We don't want to hear that. You're offending me. But there's something on the inside of them that knows when they hear the truth. And you need to keep planting that seed and watering that seed and planting that seed and watering that seed. You don't need to be arrogant about it. In fact, I'm going to tell you, if you are arrogant about it, you're probably killing your own crop. You know, we need to be gentle and lowly and, and, and loving to people. But we also need to be clear. But that's how our light will shine. But if, if, if you don't have some power behind it, if we're living just like the world lives, the rest of the world, they're going to look at you and think, well, your Christianity just consists of you going to church on Sunday, hearing a message, and... Then living like me the rest of the week, why would I want to do that? Well, to be honest with you, if, if that's our lifestyle, I have to agree with them. <laughs> why would I want to be a part of that? Why would I want to just come do, you know, I, I, church is important, but it's church is more than just a moral obligation or something to do on Monday morning before, you know, everything opens up and we go do, go do real life. And if you're not living the principles on Monday morning that you get on Sunday morning, then I just, I don't want to be harsh, but God's not pleased. Amen? So, we have this warfare. 1 Timothy 6.12. I'm just going to pick out two, two verses here. Timothy, or Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith. We have a fight to fight. Now notice he does not say, fight your spouse. Notice he does not say, fight your political opponents. He does not say, fight all those jerks that you work for. You may have the worst boss in the world, but God still calls you to work as if he is your employer. Bless them as if you work for God. And then your light will be able to shine. He says, fight the good fight of faith. And part of that fighting the good fight of faith, I'm going to change the verb there a little bit, laying hold on eternal life. Well, brother, I thought we were saved. Well, I'm saved. I believe most of, if not all of you are saved. But being saved... Being part of the kingdom does not mean you have laid hold on eternal life. When you lay hold on eternal life, you will think differently and you will live differently. What I want to talk about this morning is how do we go about thinking differently because until you think different, you cannot live different. It all starts with how you think and that all starts with how you see yourself. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, let's start in verse 3. This is Paul again, addressing a different group of people. Same general message though. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now, the word there, the, the, the Greek word there for flesh, uh, sarks, can literally mean your physical body, but intimately tied into your physical body is the nature of the flesh, which is the carnal nature. And where it says carnal here, it also, it's the same word as flesh. 
It means that the old nature, that when you got born again, you were transformed. The real you was transformed on the, on the inside, but your physical body didn't change a lick. If you were young and handsome when you got born again, you're young and handsome the moment after you got born again. If you were young and ugly, you're still young and ugly. I hate to tell you, but your body doesn't change. Other than when you get born again, physical healing belongs to you. And if you'll believe God and, and, and do what he says, you can walk in health. Amen? But we don't, none of this is by fleshly, natural means. Now, let's go verse 4. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, or they're not fleshly, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. The word there for strongholds is basilia. It literally means like a castle. Out in, in, in first century Palestine, they had tribal warfare going on constantly. And when they got way out, away from from uh, protection, they would occasionally build a stronghold. They'd build a, like a, a pillar made out of stone. And if the enemy attacked, they would run out of their fields and run into this stronghold, and they would be safe as long as they didn't come out. Well, that's what he's talking about here. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We need to pull down some things. And he tells us what in verse 5? Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. If you want to sum this all up, we're called to warfare. We've seen that here. Paul said that two different places. One of the forms of spiritual warfare that we have to deal with is the warfare of our, around our mind, how we think. And it's not necessarily what you think, but how you think, the patterns of your thought life. But, and, and to be honest with you, we can't afford, just like he said here in verse 5, we're casting down arguments, any high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. There is the knowledge of God on one hand, there is natural knowledge and the natural way to, to do things on the other side. We can't afford to entertain ideas or thoughts or plans about us. I'm not talking about other people. I'm not talking about you looking at the world. I'm talking about you examining your life and how you think about you and God. You cannot afford to entertain those thoughts that are opposite the ideas and thoughts and plans that God has toward you. Now I want to make, and I know I just said this, but I want to make this very clear. If when I say that, your thought immediately goes to someone else, you're on the wrong track. You need to pull, this is, this is one of the strongholds. Every time you get a, a, a message or every time you get a... a um, thought about there needs to be a change, you immediately take your binoculars and you zoom in on somebody else. Wow, this so-and-so really could use this message. No, this is about us. And when I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. Because I, I have a tendency, just like everybody does, to think the wrong way about me. Now, I have a pretty good revelation of righteousness and the righteousness that God has imparted to me and given to me. But it still does not mean that I don't have to fight this every day. And if I don't fight it, I'm going to slide right over and think the wrong things, and I'll eventually start doing the wrong things. And when I say doing the wrong things, I'm not necessarily talking about getting off in, you know, adultery or pornography or smoking or drinking or cussing. I'm talking about thinking of myself differently than the way God thinks of me. If God has an opinion of me, I'm an idiot if I start, if I want to argue with him and think different. God knows a little more than I know. But the moment that we begin to entertain that lie, we declare war against the very purposes of God 
in our lives. There is a warfare to be fought, but I'm going to be honest with you. The vast majority of the time, our enemy is not Satan. The worst enemy you have in this world is yourself and your old stinking thinking. When we dwell on or continuously feed on anything that's contrary to His Word or contrary to His will for us, we are actually warring against ourselves. Verse, or chapter 5, verse 1 of Romans. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That right there ought to, ought to just eliminate 99% of the problems that you think you've got. You have peace with God. God is not angry with you. I don't care what you do. I don't care how much you sin. God's not angry with you. He's at peace with you. Now, He does not want you to sin. He does not approve of your sin. But He doesn't get angry when you sin. He offers you a way out. He died. Jesus came and paid the price for it. If He has a thought, His thought is, why are you subjecting yourself to this when I've got all of this for you? But if you, if you start entertaining right there, if you start entertaining the thought that God is angry with you, it will keep you from going to the place where your answer is. Your answer is at the throne of God. And you can't get to the throne of God if you're afraid God's going to reach out and smack you when you get there. I'm sorry. I said Romans 5. I meant to go to Romans 8. I wrote it down wrong in my notes. So, let's look just briefly. Let's look at verse 7. This is talking about the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, the fleshly natural way of thinking. Because the carnal mind is enmity or at war against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. When you entertain thoughts that are different from God's thoughts, you are literally warring against yourself. You have just declared, I'm at war with you, God. He's at peace with you, but you're going to live a carnal life as long as you, as long as you do that. Let's back up to verse 5 because I want to look at some things. It's not just a matter of having carnal thoughts. Verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, this doesn't necessarily just mean that you're involved too much in earthly matters. It can mean that. You can make your career top priority, take priority of everything else. You can make your family, although God calls us to minister to our family, you can make your family higher than God. What he's talking about here primarily is that we don't, we take the thoughts that are opposed to God and we don't live, we don't set our minds on those. When I have to deal with my job or I have to deal with my family or I have to deal with the mechanics of my car or my house, you know, I told somebody recently, if you want to be sure and have proof positive in your life that the fall of man is real, buy a house. Because I guarantee you, you can move into a brand new house. I mean, you, no one's ever lived in it. You moved into it yesterday, today, it's going to need some repair. may not be major in a brand new house, but that thing will fall down around your ears before long. Why? Because the world is fallen and everything falls apart. Same way with my life, same way with my thinking. I cannot set my mind on fleshly thinking. I have to literally pull my brain back over and, and meditate on what God said about me. He says that in the second part of verse 5. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The, the, the better translation of that would be set their minds. Those who want to live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You have to make what God says about you and towards you more important than what the world says and what your own fleshly mind says about you. Amen? Verse 6, to be carnally minded is 
death. It will bring death to you. It will bring death to your life. Spiritual death, and I don't mean you lose your salvation, but you can manifest spiritual death in your life, and your life will start deteriorating. And eventually, if you do it long enough, it'll bring physical death. How you think and what, how you deal with God's Word can either put you over or put you under. It's your choice. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity. It is warfare against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When you set your mind on the flesh and don't set your mind on, the, on what God says, you cannot, cannot, he says, please God. And that automatically, I think, of Hebrews eleven six, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. If you're going to fight this fight of faith, it is a fight of faith. It's not a natural fight. It's a fight, it's a spiritual fight that you're going to have to believe that something is true about you, even when all of the evidence says it's not. Now, I've, I've had people, in fact, I've, I've had people tell me, well, I just want to keep it real. Well, if you want to keep it real, that's fine. You'll stay in real fleshly life and you'll get fleshly rewards, which is death. You can keep it real or you can get it by faith. But you're going to have to start with who you are and who God has made you and what he says about you. Now, let me just throw this out and I'm going to give you two verses to to establish it. But I don't want to take a long long time to deal with this. There were two basic temptations that, that caused, one caused the fall of man and one caused the salvation of man. The fall of man came in Genesis 3.1 when Satan, through the serpent, came to Adam and Eve and he asked one question. You all know what that is. Did God say? That question is still presented to us daily. Is that really what God said about you? Well, you're going to have to search the scriptures diligently to find what God says about you. That, that, that doesn't mean that you're going to stand in Adam and Eve's position and, you know, the whole world tilts on how you answer that. <clears throat> but your life will tilt on how you answer that. God really say that about you? He really say you're the righteousness of God in Christ? I sure, you don't act righteous. God didn't say anything about how I act. He said, I am the righteousness of God. Now, if you're not acting righteous, that's not an excuse just to go off and do whatever you want. But the key to learning how to live out righteousness is to believe and declare that I am righteous. It has to start with what you believe. And then the other one is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. This is when Jesus was led up into the wilderness And the devil, after 40 days, he fasted. He ate nothing. But notice before Satan came and tempted him with food, which he did, what was his first temptation? If you are the Son of God. His first temptation was, did God really say this? He he attacked God's Word. But his second temptation was, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus asked his disciples, who, who do people say that I am? Well, he got a lot of answers. But finally, he got to the real meat of the answer, or the meat of the, of the matter. He looked at his disciples and he said, but who do you say that I am? Because I'll guarantee you, or I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, it doesn't matter who people say Jesus is. What matters is who do you say Jesus is? Is he really God? And, and let me just throw this aside. 
I love it when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house. I just, I thrive on it. And I never argue with them. I always just ask them one question. Who is Jesus? Every, every, then they've got a thousand different things. They're well trained. But I always bring it back. No matter what they bring up, I say, but who is Jesus? Is he the archangel Michael? Because that's what they believe. Jesus is not God. Jesus is a created angel. Now, people will tell you, and, and listen, let me just, this is a little side thought, but let me chase this rabbit here real briefly. Jesus will, or, or people will always equate God and the devil. That is a false equating. If you want to equate the devil with somebody, he really does equate very well with the archangel Michael. They were both created archangels. God is so far above both of them that there was never the first chance that when Satan said, I'm putting my throne above you, there was not a ghost of a chance that that was ever going to happen because he's not in the class of being. God has no beginning. He has no end. Lucifer had a beginning. Now, he is an eternal creature just like we are. Unfortunately for him... He was not given free will, legally, and so he's going to spend his eternity in the lake of fire. But he is not equated with Jesus or the Father. They are miles above him. Amen? But that's the root of the matter. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, I want to start with, because there is a war in our mind between who God says we are and what he says we have versus who we say we are and we, what we think we have. So let's look at two verses, and I want to read them both, and then I want to really go through them. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. You can also turn to 1 Peter 2, 9. We're going to look at that in a second. But in Romans 5, verse 17, this is talking about this battle. We're talking about comparing Adam's fall, Adam's offense, with, with Jesus' um, gift of righteousness. He says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, Adam sinned. And because of Adam's sin, death has reigned from Adam, and it will reign until Jesus removes the curse of the fall. In fact, the Bible in other places says the last enemy to be removed is going to be death. Even though we are born again, even though we have new life on the inside of us, our bodies still get old, and if Jesus doesn't come back soon, we're going to face physical death. No one has escaped it. Death rate, 100%. Everybody dies. But <clears throat> it's not the physical death. It's how you live until your body quits and you have to go home. Because remember, we are strangers. We're pilgrims. This isn't our home. This is just a place where we've been assigned because we're soldiers in the army of God. Amen? Now, 1 Peter 2.9, this, this is what God is saying about us. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Wow. Wow. We, we could, I could spend a month right there. Remember, we're talking about warfare. We're talking about making sure that we think the same way about ourselves as God thinks about us. Amen? So, Romans 5.17, and this is New King James. For if by one man's offense death reigned... Through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now, 
Let's go back up to the very first part of that verse. It says, if by one man's offense, that literally means a sidestep or a stumble. It is the, the, the one here, it's the first one I've got, is transgression. Offense, transgression, it can be interpreted or, or um, translated either way. And it means to a lapse or a deviation, and I thought this interesting. It doesn't matter whether it's an un- unintentional error or willful transgression. Because see, there were, two, there were two sins here, and this is referring back to Adam's offense. <clears throat> the Bible very clearly says that Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't. And this is, you can accept this or, or reject it, but this is how I see it. it. The Bible is very clear that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, under the age of innocence, they were naked and not ashamed. And I think part of the reason they were naked and not ashamed is they could not really see each other's bodies very clearly because they were so filled with the glory of God that they were glowing. But the moment that Eve fell to that deception and ate of that fruit, I believe the glory of God departed from her. And Adam knew she was different. And Adam, in a couple of different ways, decided that he was taking the route with his wife rather than taking the route with God. He knew there were going to be consequences to this act. But I believe he loved Eve to the point where he was willing to follow Eve's example rather than go with God. And that was a sin. That's part of what we're faced with on a daily, moment-by-moment question. Are we going to follow what our wife, the flesh? Because Paul, in Romans, describes this relationship that we have with our fleshly bodies as a marriage. And basically, I'm not going to go through and read all the scriptures, but I'll give you the analogy. Basically, what Paul says is we were married to our flesh. The real you, the real spirit on the inside is physically married to your flesh. But your flesh is abusive. It's a drunk. It abuses you. It beats up on you. It causes you pain. It does all the things you can imagine in an abusive relationship. And suddenly, this guy comes into your life, because remember, in all of these illustrations, we're always the bride of Christ, which I wish we could be the husband, but that's not how God arranged it. We're the bride of Christ, so this guy comes into your life, and his name is Jesus, and Jesus is perfect. I mean, he's slim, he's trim, he's handsome, he's polite. He does everything perfect. And we're married to Mr. Monster, our flesh. So we go to Jesus, and being fleshly ourselves, we say, hey, I got a good idea. I'd really like to have a relationship with you. Why don't you kill my old husband? And then that relationship will be broken. And I'll be free to marry you. And Jesus says, I can't do that. That would be murder. But I can do this. You can volunteer to die. Your flesh, I can't, I'm not going to kill. But you, I can kill. But have no worries. The second you die, you're going to be resurrected. A brand new person. And then you are free to marry me. But you still have to live in the house with that old ogre. Because he owns the house. So we die to our old husband. We are joined to our new husband, Jesus. But what happens in every situation when you have a split? Well, maybe not every, but 99% of them. That old guy, I guarantee you what he's going to do. He's going to go on a diet. He's going to start hitting the gym hitting the tanning bed, he's going to improve his wardrobe, he's going to shave, he's going to start taking showers regularly, he's going to put on some cologne, and he's going to show up at your door, honey, and he's going to be standing there with a box of candy and a bouquet of roses and say, you want to go out and have some fun? And he's going to make it look good. And you're going to be tempted to go back with the flesh because that's what you're used to. That's where we are. That's where Jesus said, this sin of Adam 
Eve was just a slip. She was deceived, but Adam chose to go her way rather than God's way. And because of that, death reigned. That's the Greek word there, basilio. It's translated either reigned or sometimes it's translated royal. First Peter, we read there a minute ago, you are a royal priesthood. That's the same word for reigned, bastilio. It's a bastion. He said here, through Adam's offense, Adam's sin, death has made this, this ruling law, but much more. I love that. Much more. Adam's sin was powerful enough that death has reigned through every generation, every human being, from the day he sinned to the present. And it will continue to reign in the world until Jesus comes back. But much more. Those who receive abundance, that very easily could be translated superabundance. What are we receiving? The superabundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. I love this definition of righteousness. It means equity of character or action. It means that God looks at me and He looks at me as an equal. Not because I'm something, but because He raised me up. And Ephesians chapter 2 he raised me up and made me to sit with Him in heavenly places. I can't sit on the throne of Jesus if I'm not equal to Jesus. Right? You know what? I, I, let me just get into politics here for a second. Donald Trump's he's besieged on all sides. You know what? He hadn't called me once in the last two, three months to ask my advice about a thing. He could care less. He doesn't look at me as an equal. He doesn't look at anyone as having the authority that he has sitting in that big boy chair. He's the one that has the nuclear codes. He's the one that can sign the executive orders. Him, and only him. Why? Because he's the president. Like him or love him, he's got the authority and he's got the legal right to do everything that he's doing. Jesus... Christ, the creator of the universe, has taken you when you were at your lowest and raised you up and put you in his seat and said, you're equal to me, you have my authority, you have my name, you have my power, you have my glory, now go out there and do something. And we're at war with ourselves when he says that about you and you say, oh, but I'm just so afraid. I'm going to go broke. I'm going to get sick. This and that, that. We whine, we cry, we fuss, we worry, and we're sitting on the throne of the God of the universe. Well, why do we think that way? Because we are, are our own worst enemy. We're warring against God in our minds. Now notice, not only has He given us a superabundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, but He's told us, we will reign. Me. Lolio, me. And you. We will reign in life. The same way that death has reigned from Adam through today. He said, I am giving you the authority to reign in your life. And that's not just necessarily life as far as earthly life. That would, if it was earthly life, it would be the Greek word bio, where we get biology. It's the Greek word zoe, which means that we can reign in spiritual life. And I, I put down there, you can contrast this with suke, which is soulish life. There is natural life, bio, talking about your body. There is soulish life, talking about how your brain works, how your thought life works, suke. And then there's spiritual life. The one that is the most important is zoe, your spiritual life. 
The other two have to line up to your spirit. That's the reason He gave us the, the ability to reign in our spirit so that we can bring our soul and our body in line with what our spirit already is. But that's not just going to happen. We have to make that happen. Amen? Now turn over to 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It gets even better. As great as that verse was, 1 Peter 2, 9 is even better. Very first phrase. You are a chosen generation. I, I, I remember, it's been a year or more, I preached out of Romans 8, verse 30. The message... Bible, the message translation, says when it talks about us in, in King James, New King James, it says that we are called. Message, I love the way they phrase it. They said, God called you by name. Being a guy growing up in, in the era when you, you, you chose up for teams, you always wanted to be called on, chosen. You didn't want to be the last one chosen, and you for sure didn't want to be the one that the two captains argued about who had to take you. And they did, you know, rock, paper, scissors to see which one got stuck with you. And God didn't do rock, paper, scissors with the devil, and, you, and he lost, and he had to take you. He looked at you and said, that's my child. I want them. And he called you by name. And he said, that's my child. They're on my team. We are chosen, but we're not just chosen, we're a chosen generation. Greek word there is genos. Genos means, literally, generation. If, if you go back in my, um, go to Ancestry.com, and I, I'm praying someday I'm going to have enough time that I can actually go do that. I've got a cousin, she's deceased now, but she, was, she got into, into um, family trees before computers. That takes a dedication. She had to go visit courthouses, dig up papers. Now you can get on the computer and you can have an abundance of stuff. But in, 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 if you look at my family tree, there's my ethnic background. And, there's, and then there's my generational background. I'm, part, I'm the, one of the tail end of the baby boomers. But there's an ethnicity to me too. My mom, her family was born in eastern Kentucky, Hazard, Kentucky, Harlan, Kentucky, rough part of the mountains, people, let me tell you. But being there, they were all Scotch-Irish. You didn't, you know, my mom was born in 1923. So even in 1923, you didn't move in and out of the mountains very easily. So if you were born there, you probably got raised there. It wasn't until World War II in that generation that people really started spreading out, moving out of their, their, where they were born and raised. My dad, single child, only child, was French-Canadian. That's my ethnic background. But I've also got my generational background. That's what Jesus is saying here through Peter. I'm a chosen generation. God, and it, it always reminds me of the story of Esther. Mordecai said to Esther, you were born for such a time as this. I didn't just happen to be born in this time frame. God looked down through history and He called me and you to be born during these end times when things would be rough and tough and hard to deal with. Why? Because he knew we could take it. You're the one I called to come and do this battle right now. I would have called some other people, but they couldn't handle it. But I knew you could handle life now. I know you can handle the problems of life now. That changes your outlook when you look at it that way. That's how God looks at it. This is not, you didn't just happen here because of an accident. I decided in my sovereign will to put you in this place at this time for such a time as this. That's my generation. But then he goes on. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. That's an oxymoron in the Jewish world. You were either a king or a priest. That was it. 
or prophet. The only three offices they had. But he looks at us and he says, you're royalty, but you're also a priest. This royalty is the same word he used over in Romans 5.17 for reign. You're a priest that, sh- that I've called to reign in life. When you look at your life and you say, man, is this, just, this is overwhelming. I can't handle this. Just understand, you've just stood up, stood in front of the, you've gotten off, up off the throne, you've turned around and faced Jesus and said, you're a liar. You said I could reign in life and I can't. You may not feel like you can, but if you can't, then Jesus is a liar. You might as well just burn your Bible Throw it away, go off, eat, drink, be happy, for tomorrow we die. I'm serious. Serious is a heart attack. Either Jesus is correct and he said you will rule and reign in this life by me, or he's not correct. Well, he says right here, you're a priest that's called to reign. Then he says you're a holy nation. That's the Greek word ethnos. Now, I have a natural heritage and natural ethnic background of Scotch-Irish and French-Canadian. But when God looks at me, He says, that's not how I see you. I don't look at the Scotch and the Irish and the French-Canadians. You're my child. You belong to me. You're a special um, nation that was born out of my loins. You have my nature. When you look up your family tree, you don't have to look back generations and generations. You just look back and see, Jesus, that's it. I'm, I'm His child. I'm the Father's child. I belong to Him. He's my daddy. Now, I've got a natural father. He's in heaven. I've got a natural mother. She's in heaven. I've got ancestors. And I had my, my cousin that was into um, genealogies. She said, if you go back far enough in anybody's genealogy, you'll find some admirals and some horse thieves. I mean, you look far back, you're going to find some scoundrels and some people that are outstanding citizens. Well, you look in my, when he says I'm a holy nation, <clears throat> it's because I only have, I only go back one generation. Jesus doesn't have any, any uh, stepchildren. And he doesn't, even have any, he doesn't have any grandchildren. He's my brother. The father is my father, and I'm one generation away from him. And I have his very nature on the inside of me. But I'm called, and I'm set apart. That holy means I'm physically pure, I'm morally blameless. Well, brother, I've, I've, I've violated some moral laws. My fleshly side did, but that's not the real me. God looks at me and he says, no, you're righteous. You are righteous. Not you're going to be, not you will be if you live this way. You are righteous. And I've said it before. The key to living the righteous life is to get it through your head. God looks at you and says, it's a work that's already done. Amen? I am his own special people. Family joke. I always told my kids and tell my wife every once in a while, I'm one of those special people. The little yeller bus come pick me up at school. Well, I am special, but I'm not that kind of special. If I have a handicap, it's because sometimes my fl- I allow my flesh to rule rather than believing what God says about me, that my flesh does not rule and reign in my life. I rule and reign over my flesh. And sometimes I have to do that by faith because my flesh is acting up. And I've fed it, and it gets an attitude, and I've starved my spirit. I haven't been feeding on the Word, I haven't been praying, I haven't been believing right, I haven't been thinking right. And suddenly, my flesh rears up and says, <clears throat> Yeah, I don't really care what God says about you. This is how it is. And I have a choice when those things happen. I can change, start feeding on the right stuff, I can, I, as, as uh, Romans 8 said, I can feed my spirit and feed on the spirit, or I can make a decision to keep feeding on the flesh and keep feeding on the wrong things and let my flesh grow up. You know, every 
case of cancer that's ever existed, there's one way to kill every cancer, and that's to deprive it of its food. The, 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 one of the ways that they have looked hard, they've, they've studied sharks tremendously, because sharks have this ability, they almost never get cancer, they have this ability to cut the blood flow off from cancers. And every cancer that's ever grown has a tremendous supply of blood. It's one of the things that a cancer cell will do. It will stimulate the development of an intense blood flow to that tumor so that it can have the food to grow because it wants to grow fast. If you can cut off that blood flow, you will kill the cancer. Well, your flesh is the same way. If, it feed, if you feed it, it wants more. It tells you, I want more and more and more, and it develops, a, and it develops an intense craving. And if you keep feeding it, it will grow. But if you start feeding your spirit and starving your flesh, guess what? Your spirit will grow, and your flesh will start to die off, and it will start to get quiet. It will never go silent, not until you die. When you don't feed it for long periods of time, and you feed your spirit, then you can rule and reign over it. But notice what he's called us to, and I'm going to finish with this. Not nearly finished, but we'll pick it up next week. Let me just go back and read through this again with all of that in mind. 1 Peter 2.9 You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're His own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of Him, meaning Jesus, who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, into His phos. That's the word there for phos, for light, is phos, where we get the, the, the physics term photon. But literally that word means to light or to make manifest. So if you think of that definition... What he's saying is, I have chosen you. I've made you a priesthood that rules. I've declared that you are a holy nation. You are my own special people so that you can proclaim my praises because I called you out of darkness and called you, let me retranslate this, I called you to shine or make manifest my glory. That's what he means when he says, I've called you out of darkness into my marvelous light. I want you to live a life so close to my life that my glory will shine out of you. And people, when they look at you, they will see me. And that, that glory doesn't necessarily mean just, uh, you know, like Moses, your body's going to shine. It can mean that in the midst of your, where you work, when word comes down, hey, the company's going bankrupt, or they're going to have to close a bunch of stores, and ours one of them. And everybody at break time saying, oh, my Lord, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And you're sitting around saying, well, I had a, was looking for a job when I found this one. God gave me this one. He'll give me another one. And I'll be making more money. And I'm not going to worry about it. When suddenly you don't worry about things the world worries, they're going to look at you, like, at you and think, are you nuts? Are you crazy? You can't go through life without worrying. Yes, you can. I have done it. I haven't done it perfectly, but that's one that I, I have mastered pretty well. I just don't worry about much anymore. Now, don't, don't mistake it. I, I have my faults. You don't believe it? Talk to my wife. Talk to my kids. Talk to people who have to hang around me. I've got plenty of faults. But worry's not one of them. You know, let's just take one example. How many times in your life have you, had, have you run into financial problems? And you've asked God to take care of your financial problems. And God's met your need. And then... A couple of months later, a couple of weeks later, maybe a few years later, you have another financial problem. What do you do? Well, if you're carnally minded, you start fretting. And you start saying, oh, my Lord, what am I going to do? We're going under, we're going under, we're going under. 
If you're spiritually minded, you'll recall that victory in the past and you'll say, well, God, you, you, you brought me through the last six of them. You're going to bring me through this one. I don't care what the circumstances look like. You called me to do this. I'm going to get it done. I loved um, um, Scott had a post on their, their school, in, uh, Scott Bogart, in um, um, Costa Rica. And basically they're expanding, starting a second school. But he had this little statement, because it's, you know, you've got to rent another building in another city. It's more money. And um, they're not, you know, they don't have millions of dollars in the bank. Let's put it that way. But he made the statement, if it's, if, if it's God's will, then it's his bill. If you're living your life doing what God called you to do, then he's responsible to get you the funds to do what he called you to do. I, I loved it. Um, people used to come through Raymond. If you've ever been at Raymond's campus, um, it takes a lot of money to, to um, run that place. And um, people that knew Brother Hagen would say, man, I, I bet you just... Because they're, they're running on donations. They don't have, you know, it's not endowed. They don't have, they're not like Harvard and some of these big schools. They don't have $500 million in a bank somewhere and they're living off the interest and paying all their bills. People are given monthly to keep that place going. And it takes millions of dollars a month to keep that place going. And he said, I don't worry a time about it. I didn't want to come to Tulsa. He made me leave Texas, and believe me, for a Texan to leave Texas for Oklahoma, that's a sacrifice. He said, I didn't, when, I came, when I left Texas, I didn't want to come to Tulsa, and I certainly didn't want to build a Bible school. I didn't want to do any of it. But God told me to do it. He said, it's his school. If he can't support it, I'm going back to Texas and do what I want to do. And he didn't worry a bit about it. And he's got payroll, he's got bills. I mean, there's a lot to go. Now, he worked. He worked hard. He went out and, and did um, crusades when he was in his 80s. Most people are retired and just sitting back and relaxing. And he's out preaching all summer long. He would travel and preach and stay away from home. <clears throat> Why? Because that's how he raised money for the school. But he never worried about it. He just went and preached and did what, he, what God told him to do. And God paid the bills. Well, whatever God's called you to do, God's responsible to get you the ability to do what He's called you to do. He's chosen you. He's fitted you. He's given you a superabundance of grace and His righteousness. He's called you by name. He's placed you in this generation. And He said, my job for you, if you want to know in general, is to go out and to display my glory as the world is falling apart and people are terrified. And I mean, there are people terrified today. They are literally shaking in their boots. There are some that can't eat because they know the world is going to hell. We're probably going to have a nuclear war. You know, there's just going to be nothing left. Well, there's two. One thing, God said... This earth will be dissolved in fire, but not till He comes back. Not till after the millennial reign. So I'm not worried about nuclear war. But I also realize that the absence of President Trump or um, the Prime Minister of England, Theresa May, or Vladimir Putin, or whoever the Premier of China, none of those guys are calling me, asking me for my advice. What's, what's the point in me worrying? It's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to find out what God wants me to do, long-term and short-term, and then set my hand to do it, knowing that whatever He's called me to do, He's equipped me to do, and therefore I cannot lose. I cannot lose. 
Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.